the Royal Australian Air Force in person, 1921 to 2021. Ad Astra Aviator. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. The narrator is Gareth McRae, OAM. Introducing Wing Commander Philip Eldridge. In Phil's words, his initial claim to fame is that he successfully navigated an interesting and at times exciting childhood in Sydney's western suburbs. A visit to the RAAF Richmond Air Show in the 1980s sealed his fate. At the time, he was a student of the excellent Hurlston Agricultural High School, but had less than optimal academic focus, resulting in barely scraping a pass in his HSC. Phil joined the RAAF in November 1987 as a direct entry pilot, graduating from number 149 pilots course in December 1989. Posted to fast jets, he commenced his fighter training at 76 Squadron. This was followed by FA-18A conversion in 1991, with his first tour at 75 Squadron beginning in 1992. Fighter combat instructor course in 1994 was followed by tours of 75 Squadron Fighter Combat Instructor, 81 Wing as Standardisation Officer, Fighter Combat Instructor Course Director and Executive Officer, 77 Squadron. In 2005, Phil separated from Defence but served in the RAAF Active Reserve at two operational conversion unit for the next eight years. He then re-engaged in the RAAF in 2015 through the Specialist Aircrew Scheme. Phil resumed his career as Executive Officer once more at two operational conversion unit, seeing out the FA-18 Classic before transitioning to F-35s in 2020. Aviation highlights in his career are many, but include over 3,600 hours in the Classic Hornet operational flying tours in Operation Falconer 2003 and Okra 2016, and now flying the F-35A Lightning, which is a beast. Well, Wing Commander Phil Eldridge, it's been a great pleasure to be able to finally catch up with you. How are you today? I'm outstanding, Gareth. It's a beautiful day up here in Queensland and uh, the sun's shining. Yeah, they say, does the sun never not shine in Queensland? (laughs) (laughs) I've had a couple of bad days, but the cyclone's gone off the coast, so we're all good now. Yeah, just reading a little bit about you, I notice you've said on a number of occasions, or not a number, but a few occasions, that growing up in Sydney's west had its challenges. Can you relate some of those challenges for us? Oh, I think I grew up uh, in a, uh, a pretty uh, challenging area in the western suburbs there. Not a lot of money, but uh, a lot of good spirits, I think. And I think just generally a uh, single parent growing up as well. Good father, just didn't live with us. Some of those challenges kind of build a fair bit of resilience, I think, is probably what I got out of it. You ended up at Hurlston Agricultural College. Now, that's a very prestigious... Uh, you obviously had the brains to get in. How did that happen? I think I only just got in, Gareth. Heard about it. It just seemed like an opportunity to sort of break away educationally, try to advance uh, myself. So it was a late decision in primary, late in primary school. Sat the selection and uh, managed to get in. I've also always had a pretty strong affiliation with agriculture. Had family who still have properties up Ben Lomond, Glen Innesway, and I used to spend a lot of time on property up there. So pretty close attraction to the country. 
Just take us through the process of becoming involved with the RAAF. And I know the Richmond Air Show had something to do with it. Just tell us that story. Yeah, I think from, uh, I remember being seven years old and uh, going out to our local airfield at Hoxton Park and just watching flying and being a bit captivated by it. So I rode my bike down there. I used to do that kind of regularly and always had an interest in aviation, but it was more civil orientated early on. My uncle, who's a returned Vietnam vet, saw my interest and thought he'd give me a military appreciation of it and took me to the Richmond Air Show in 1985 and we had our Mirages doing displays, F-111s obviously and the rest. And But that pretty much sealed the deal with my focus becoming pretty, you know, solely squared on getting into the RAF. Did your relative, what force was he in, in as a Vietnam vet? I was in the army. Uh, he tell you proudly, he never shot a gun. He was a pay clerk, so it probably made him the in the top three or four most important people over there to make sure all the uh, troops got paid. He didn't try and talk you into joining the army, did he? No, he probably tried. He pretty clearly talked me away from it, to be honest. <laughs> the uh, air force was a pretty clear choice. We'll come to that in a moment. I just want to know what you see the role of a wing commander. I mean, what do you think your role is? My role is capability development without a shadow of a doubt as far as leading a squadron or pretty much any leading any unit, whether it's a flying unit or not. And then breaking that down specifically, it's people focused and whether that's developing them to sit in the front seat or in the only seat in an F-35 to be combat ready when they leave my unit or whether it's mentoring and training and developing the troops that fix these wonderful aeroplanes. We've got that responsibility across both maintenance as well as aircrew. So generation of capability is my sole focus and that's people focused. Let's develop that. As a wing commander, what do you see as the most important part of your relationship with those who are not yet wing commanders? So I have a, a broad relationship base with you know the earliest ranks in the Air Force of AC, you know the most junior aviators that we have. And my role for them in the maintenance side is to build a an environment sustainable that really fosters that love of the military and that focus on capability development uh, in a safe space, to be honest. And for air crew, it's about providing them the environment where they can challenge themselves and pretty good at doing that which is just awesome to watch so from an air crew side i get to work with the best professionals in the world and i like i love coming to work with everybody it's great that, that seems to be a common denominator in everyone i've spoken to from the air force in terms of that esprit de corps that companionship that friendship that team building it seems a very important ingredient within any training of the rwaf yeah, it's, it's everything, to be honest. We're a stress force in some ways. Uh, we're a very capable force uh, in many others, and uh, it's our people. That's the foundation. How do you explain to the air crew, for argument's sake, that unlike the Army and unlike the Navy, we're giving you a, a multi-million dollar piece of equipment, so please bring it back safely. H how do you instill that kind of mentality? It's not hard. They come with that mentality through training. So the training of a pilot just develops that. So I'm there to mentor them. I don't use the word safety, to be honest, Gareth. It's more about capability. You know, not breaking things and not breaking people is a result of the focus you bring and how professionally you approach yourselves and act with integrity. So the safety side, you know, that's a byproduct of the professionalism that these amazing aviators show me every day. There's not a lot of guidance needed with the air crew, I'll be honest. All right, 1987. You got in the as a direct entry pilot. What is yeah, that? It means I didn't have a degree and I couldn't get into ADFA, which I didn't try to either. So it basically means you're straight into flying. You did three months of officer training, uh, which was at Point Cook back then, and then straight into flying training, uh, which I commenced and completed in 1989 in Perth. As a person from Hurlston Ag, Sydney's Greater West, where does your flying skill come from, do you think? flying skill after my many years of instruction is 60% DNA, 
25% the right attitude and the rest is the, is the hard work. What's involved in the hard work part? Contrary to what most people think, it's not you know, academically challenging at all, but there's a volume of information and volume of knowledge that is enormous, which is appropriate, particularly when you get onto fighter jets in the latter part of your career, when you get operational on any type in the Air Force. So there's a lot of volume of information and there's a lot of mental rehearsal. And that's something a lot of people can't do, you know, sitting down at night in your bedroom every, you know, every night, rehearsing the next day's events and how you're going to fly through those and the what ifs and the contingencies. That's where the volume of work really comes in. It's uh, the investment in time time there. So that investment in time before you actually get into the cockpit, that is an important part and a long part of the preparation for flying? Absolutely is. And not for every mission these days, but for many missions, I still do it. Probably one of the funny stories, I fly a Robin aircraft down at uh, the Williamtown Flying Club and I put more prep into flying the little propeller aeroplane than I do for some of the missions in the F-35 because I'm not that current at it. That's a continuous part of my life. Well, if you can sit in the cockpit of an F-35 with a helmet on, with all of that information coming, it's streaming into you from radar and various other things, all in visual display with in front of you in your helmet. Are you saying... Flying a simple propeller plane is more complicated? No, it's just something I don't do very often. So um, the only mistake you can make with aviation is to disrespect it. <laughs> so if I fly a propeller plane once a year or, you know, once every six months, it's going to get a fair bit of attention over, you know, I get to strap on an F-35 two or three times a week. I'm in the simulator a couple of times a week on average. So uh, I'm in a much more familiar space in the F-35. Okay. So that, respect that and aviation go together. I understand that. Um, although... As an analogy, if I get out of a, I don't know, a high-performance sports car and jump into a Volkswagen from 1970, it's still the same thing. I'm still driving. Surely the skill transfers easily, does it not? I mean, please correct my head. No, it, it absolutely does. Once I get into the, the Robin, for example, everything's a lot slower and you start to laugh and giggle at it all. Yeah, there's a lot of dials. Your eyes don't know where they're going necessarily to find the information initially, but it doesn't take long before it's a glove as well. So, okay. yes, they do absolutely transfer. Now, you commenced <laughs> fighter training at 76 Squadron. What yeah. was involved in fighter training? Back then, it was on the Mackie, the MB-326H, and basically, that's leading fighter training. So, it's not a, a high-performance jet, but it can do a lot of the stuff. So, basic dogfighting, basic air-to-surface attacks, dropping bombs, shooting guns, and that sort of level, just to give you that post-pilot's course, it's all about flying the aeroplane, and this is the first introduction to fighting an aeroplane and flying, you know, fighting as a formation, not just by yourself. Clearly, you help train people in that situation now. When you started, what kinds of things did the instructor say to you while you were flying to prepare you uh, to succeed as a fighter pilot? Instruction is my life and has been, and I truly, truly love it. It's an amazing challenge to be an instructor uh, in a fast jet because things happen so fast. While you need to be guiding and helping and assisting with, we use what we call keywords, so one or two words that ping the student as to what they should be thinking next you also have to balance that with sitting on your hands saying nothing and just letting them go and see how they perform themselves so it's a lovely balancing act uh, and it's one of the true challenges of instructing in jets well let's take two students uh, i'm first student and i i make a couple of mistakes in my training and my second student is my brother and he's brilliant he makes no mistakes so 
taking those two students, what would you say to each of them maybe after the flight? The student that makes a couple of mistakes to start with, what kinds of things would you say to that person? First thing that's important there is that the relationship between them, not so much of his brother, but just say his peers in a squadron and how they're individually performing doesn't impact at all. Each individual pilot in the squadron, we aim to get to the standard required, if that makes sense. So for the pilot that's performing well, and may not have made any errors, then there's always some mentoring I can do about how they might be able to grow future opportunities in what they might be able to explore uh, on the next mission, for example. So we might provide them some different challenges on the next flight. For the student having a couple of challenges, that is a normal person. I can't remember having the perfect flight in there. So the normal person, it's just about the basics. So we will talk about, there's only ever three things I want you to fix for the next flight. And we're just going to focus on those rather than thinking of a hundred things that could possibly be, have been perfect, but they weren't. We're just going to break it down into the rule of threes and we'll focus on those. That makes sense. And you would expect that that pilot to go back and think through, like you said, you do all the, the work before you actually get into the cockpit. You'd expect that pilot to go back and think about those three things. And now, how what have I got to do to focus on those three things? Is that a fair enough summary? A perfect summary. And as much as what they focus on, I've got to make sure I tell them what not to focus on. So one of our challenges for students who are challenged is often incorrect prioritisation and preparation. So we spend a lot of time, every one of my pilots on course will be spending a couple of hours the night before thinking through and chair flying their mission. We've got to make sure they're focused on the right things and part of that is ensuring not focused on the wrong things or the stuff that's not going to add value to their performance. Let's get back to to Phil and your FA18A conversion course in 1991. How did that go? Went very well, which I'm very fortunate about. <laughs> um, uh, it was amazing. The fourth flight in a F-18 Classic Hornet was solo. Uh, I remember doing that. Very good friend of mine, Frank Dalterio was my instructor and Mick Maher was my other instructor there. Uh, they met with a glass of champagne at the end. I can't remember the flight except there was a hell of a lot of crosswind. Uh, I think we're at the aircraft limit and uh, that just shows you how tough the F-18 was. <laughs> I think I just pancaked it on and it just sorted itself out. What is an aircraft's limit? What does that mean? Aircraft design limit. Um, so as far as crosswind goes, so wind blowing opposite, you know, 90 degrees out to the runway. For the Hornet, it was 30 knots, you know, about 50, 55 kilometres an hour. That's its design limit. Now you can go a bit past that, but you try not to. But I think on my first flight, we were definitely at the design limit. Is this in terms of the landing that, or the yeah. takeoff? Or, yeah, right. Yeah, absolutely. Just landing. And then, you know, obviously the aircraft has a maximum speed, a maximum altitude, and many other limits that we know intimately during flight. But yeah, for landing and takeoff, there's typically a crosswind limit for all aeroplanes. Let's assume 60 knots, and that's way above what you say the aircraft's limit is. And you have to land. Are you able to, or you, you can't? In that case, that would be pretty extreme. We'd, I'd probably go to another airfield, to be honest. <laughs> There's probably been a pretty big error in our planning and our authorization process to get us there. More realistic is probably five or ten knots more than the aircraft limit, in which case we typically would probably just hold a bit of extra fuel, wait for one of the quieter periods in the gusts. I know you're not a, na a naval pilot, but I would assume because the Hornets were used on aircraft carriers when they were active in the United States Navy, surely they're going to face that dilemma all the time, trying to land on the deck of an aircraft carrier in, with all the convulsions of the sea and wind, etc. Yeah, the beauty of an aircraft carrier is they can turn and they point into wind, so they remove uh, one of the problems. <laughs> so so there's, never any, there's never any crosswind when they land, but uh, pitching seas, and if you've 
ever want to get a pilot anxious, just watch a video of a carrier landing in pitching seas where the deck's moving up and down 50 feet uh, as you're approaching it. I haven't done it. I kind of like to in some ways, but I can tell you the anxiety levels will be up there. Yeah, all right. Well, don't worry, Phil. You're in the Air Force, not the Navy. Yes, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, following the conversion course of 1991, what was your first tour and how did it go? And tell us about it. Yeah, it was awesome. It was one of the highlights of my life. I was a magpie, so that means that's the emblem of emblem 75 Squadron up at RAF Base Tyndall in Catherine and Northern Territory, so about 300 k south of Darwin. And flying up there was just an unbelievable experience. Becoming a Territorian, getting a four-wheel drive, getting out camping with the whole squadron, a spread of call through the roof, multiple trips to Asia, flying with Malaysia, Singapore, uh, multiple other countries. Just an incredible grounding experience. And quite challenging. You know, uh, our learning early on in the first couple of years of a squadron is a pretty steep learning curve. So still studying continuously, but I've never complained about the study because I actually quite enjoy it. Great challenging time. Wonderful. That's the experience from Hurlston Ag coming back, you see. See, I told you so. Um, <laughs> you, you mentioned in that first tour up the territory at flying with Malaysia, et cetera, et cetera. What did that involve? What What were you all doing and how's it? how does it work? Yeah, so obviously we regularly fly uh, with international countries. The last Pitch Black last year, I think, saw 22 international countries attend. It's obviously an imperative that we can work with other forces, but up then in that time, and we still do it, the Five Power Defence Agreement, the FPDA, uh, is a alliance between ourselves, the UK, New Zealand, Malaysia and Singapore, and we were exercised together simulating an air defence, so protecting the peninsula effectively, and that happened every year. When you do have those international cooperations, how does that work in terms of who's in charge and who sets the agenda and the language difficulties, etc.? How does it work? Typically, the country hosting will set the environment. We all walk in even as far as responsibilities go. We will all share leadership of missions. We have our own sovereign authorization, obviously, about what we're happy to accept. But outside of that, the idea is to mix it up, be led around by you know mission leaders from all of various countries, employing, coordinating our tactics with them. It's about becoming one and being able to do that in training will allow us to do it in conflict. The countries that you mentioned in that scenario, uh, the United States wasn't mentioned. Do we also, do you also cooperate in, in group activities with the United States, etc.? Uh, the United States and our Air Force, in particular the USAF, but also the US Navy, it's seamless. We work with them all the time. The number of exercises we have with them, there's always some of our jets are over in the US flying on their major exercises or coordinating with them. We have multiple exchange officers who are from the US. I've got one in my squadron. We have two or three over in their squadrons. It's a seamless you know, relationship and it has been for probably the last 20 years. It's gone that way and it just continues to grow. The relationship between Yusuf, Yusuf and RAAF is, is, is as if we were one. Would that be a correct summary? Absolutely. So obviously we probably have some different capabilities. Size is different. Some of the weapons may be different, but there wouldn't be a US squadron that wouldn't have flown with an Aussie squadron and feel that we're seamless in the way we can interact with each other. And that's certainly our feeling. So the relationship between American flyers and Australian flyers is they know each other well. Yeah, it's tight. We share tactics, we share development and yeah, it's just very tight and for good reason. 
we talked about your fighter training with 76 Squadron. How is that different from your fighter combat training? What's the difference? <laughs> fighter combat instructors course is the equivalent of, you guess it, Top Gun in the US. We run it every 18 months between five and six pilots normally are on the course and they become our fighter combat instructors. It's the toughest course in the Air Force, five and a half months long. It's incredibly intense. It draws on the resources of the entire Air Force to support it for the last month, which is typically found in Darwin. Uh, and we're about to start another one in January next year. We just completed one in uh, June of 2022. It's an incredibly important part. It provides tactical specialists at that level and that serves them well while they're in the squadron, but it also serves them well in joint environments and in higher level interactions with, for example, the US and UK. So tactic specialists in there. It's a core foundation of our fighter skills. You mentioned it. I didn't. You mentioned Top Gun. Did you see the film Top Gun Maverick? Yeah, I love it. Except for the first 10 minutes, that flying at Mach 10, ejecting and living and ending up in a bar. That was funny to watch. <laughs> but, Un unrealistic? Yeah, you could call it that, surviving that. But that's cool. I loved it. I thought it was brilliant. There isn't the arrogance or anything that's displayed there, but I thought they did a really good job. And what's more important is both Top Gun 1 and 2, if people are wondering what it looks like flying, that's what it looks like. <laughs> so when we talk about dogfights, that's what it looks like. So again, for the person who's not in the Royal Australian Air Force, sure. the accuracy of the flying scenes in either or both of those, particularly the second one, Top Guns, is pretty close to reality? Not the accuracy in tactics. I think that would be a stretch, but what it looks like. What does it look like outside the cockpit when I look around at other jets flying? That's exactly what it looks like. What does it look like when I fly low level? That's what it looks like on Top Gun Maverick. <laughs> there is a scene in Top Gun, which I'm sure you'll remember, where Tom Cruise, there are two pilots flying along and talking about blah, 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 and all of a sudden he bangs in between them at, at great, great speed. Is that a possibility? No. Okay. <laughs> no one in the world's going to authorise that. I think there's some pretty good CGI. But we get really close to each other. Like, we literally fly six to eight feet off each other's wings when we're in close formation. When the aircraft are talking to each other, that's absolutely accurate. accurate. The jet flight ripping between them, not so much. Thank you for that. <laughs> With the fighter combat instructors course in 1994 that you did, does that result in what we could call, again, with a Top Gun idea, you are now a Top Gun, you are now a top fighter pilot? I'm a fighter combat instructor, so I'm a Top Gun graduate or a fighter combat instructor graduate, more importantly, in Australia. And that's a license to learn my next level of capability, which is to teach tactics and to develop tactics for the force. You climb up on ladder and you move across, get qualified for a new set of skills, and then you start climbing that ladder. We're always progressing. This is not a stagnant org organisation. Let's go to what I think are two were two very important operations, and the first one being in 2003, Operations Falconer, off yeah. to Iraq and yep. 75 Squadron, FA-18 Hornets. What was, that, what was that all involved under? So Falconer, uh, everyone's familiar with the 2003, I guess, uh, invasion of Iraq. It was a very important time for the Air Force for us. We were pretty much in many ways, I think, a training-focused organisation rather than a combat-focused organisation. But what we did realise is that the skills we trained to from the flying perspective were on the money. As far as tactically executing over there and the missions we were given, we were well prepared. Um, I don't think the Air Force as a whole was well prepared. Logistic issues uh, and the rest of it, it was really a wake-up call, to be honest, that we need to be more uh, operationally focused as a force. There'd been very little activity outside of that, some P3 work prior to that in that area in the Middle East. What yep. could have been done uh, in retrospect? What could have been done to improve what you said was we weren't prepared? 
I don't think I could make a valuable comment, to be honest, because I was probably part of it. There was no conflict on horizon. Does that make sense? So yes. We weren't involved in 1991 from a fighter force. You know, we sent a few special forces and we sent a couple of Navy ships, but there, there was no horizon for conflict. So I think that generates itself. But what Falconer taught us was that it could happen anytime. You're not necessarily going to get the World War Two build-up that started in, what, 1933. <laughs> yeah, well, for example, that demonst- is demonstrated in Ukraine in February of last year. Bang, it that Great example. Yeah, exactly. Operation Catalyst was the withdrawal. Were you involved in that too? No, not particularly. Uh, really, we were, Falconer was the primary for the fighters and we left there in early May from memory after really, we had three weeks of combat op uh, in a three and a half month deployment. That was effectively, it was obviously pretty short and sharp as you remember and we were pretty much out of there from then. Jumping to 2016, a number yeah. of years later of course, and we have Operation Okra against Daesh or ISIS. Uh, yeah. We were, the, uh, we were part of Joint Task Force 633. Could you just tell us all about that? We were ready for that. It was a role that, to be honest, challenging uh, tactically, it wasn't the most challenging of roles for us. No one was really shooting us with surface air missiles. There wasn't any air defence. Our challenge was to be absolutely perfect or as good as we could be in delivering weapons in support of ground forces. What that involved was a lot of hours of flying. I think I did, my shortest mission was five and a half hours. My longest was probably 10 or 11. We're flying out of the Middle East. We'd refueled twice on the way to the area of operations. That area of operations was pretty much all of Iraq. I saw the Iranian border. I saw, I flew very close to the Syrian border, the Turkey border and over near Jordan. So they were pretty much infiltrated most of the country. Uh, and I was there for the start of the offensive that headed towards Mosul. So the take back of Baghdad and then some of the outlying areas. And then uh, I was there for the commencement as they headed towards uh, the Iraqi Defence Force headed towards Mosul to retake it, which was early 2016. The flying was uh, long, hours of work were all over the place. That was fine though. You know, we're back living in tents just like MASH, but with really nice air conditioners. The Esprit de Corps over there was through the roof. Everyone there was focused. The logistics train of the Air Force had worked it out and were a competent and capable and sustainable force over there uh, while we provided that support. Mm. Uh, lots of night flying, lots of thunderstorms, uh, lots of refueling, lots of time, you know, just orbiting, doing nothing, uh, just being there with weapons available in case they were needed. I love talking to an aviator who not only loves Top Gun but also remembers MASH. <laughs> <laughs> there's not many of us left. No, there's not many of us left, just you and me. You mentioned in that description that no one was really shooting at us. How is our training when we are faced with the potential risk of someone on the ground with a ground-to-air missile or another plane with a missile? How do we train for that? How How do we prepare for that? We train to it every day. Our our whole game and goal is to train a lot harder than we fight. We don't always achieve it, but I can tell you regularly on most of the missions that the F-35 is flying on, we're always being shot at by enemy air and by surface air threats. And we constantly refine and practice our defences. We optimise our jets so we're in a threat envelope for as limited time as possible. But that is a constant in training. We're always always being shot at and we're comfortable. (laughs) In terms of joint task force, that means you're part of of a group of other nations could you just again tell me how that worked in terms of communications in terms of decisions made during the day who takes control who's in charge etc yeah great question uh, and it's a really good example of international cooperation uh, in 2016 in Okra. Um, I'll give you an example of one flight so um, our missions would be generated from the air operations center which is where all the countries involved in the coalition all their command and control was centered they would come up with the tasking orders issue them out to the squadron we'd fly in response 
response to those. On one mission I took off, my first refueling was with a Canadian aircraft. My second refueling was with an Italian air-to-air refueling aircraft. And I ended up dropping bombs in a coordinated mission with some Eurofighters from the UK. And that was all in one mission, all under the same command and control. But that's a great example of how that works. But it's really the centralised command and control in the Air Operations Centre that mm. enables that in ops. So it's not like we fly two waves a day. It's There's 24 hours of flying. Uh, on my base, a jet was taking off every five minutes. There was a couple of jets taking off or landing for 24 hours a day. It's a big operation. You mentioned the Air Operations Centre. Obviously, that centre is communicating with all of the various pilots. Is that operation centre run by the different nationalities or is it run by one nationality? It was facilitated by the US, without a doubt, who had the overwhelming number of people there. But they delegated command and control to multiple levels. So we would regularly have an Australian in their delegated command and control level during their operations. So it was pretty seamless. Now, maybe not all countries got that level of responsibility, but certainly the UK and the Australians did. You end up as executive officer of two operational conversion units. How did that occur? What led to that? Great story. Uh, back in 20, oh, 2000 and probably six or seven, I actually left the Air Force and went to do some public speaking with a company called Afterburner, which is still out today, and focusing on business execution, and a fair bit of safety work. That was really broadening from being just an Air Force person, but I was still doing 200 days a year in uniform, still flying Hornets, so it was a part-time job. I got offered a full-time job as a contract pilot for the Air Force, effectively. It's called Specialist Aircrew in 2015, and as part of that, deal, they asked me to be executive officer of 2SU, which I got to do for four years and saw out the end of the classic corner before we transitioned to F-35. So that's an incredible responsibility, an incredible opportunity. That's been followed up now with them offering me to be CEO of the same squadron, which uh, I am very humble and uh, very, very lucky to have. I've often asked people who were in the Air Force and they were on helicopters and how sad it was when the helicopter was transferred over to the Army. But I remember that. You, that. <laughs> are you Okay, well, I'm not going to ask you that question no, all right that's fine how sad or unsad were you when the fa-18 was retired do you know what i thought i'd be a tragic <laughs> I, okay. I thought i I'm, i've got a video still i took a video inside the cockpit of shutting down the aircraft on my last flight and that's the last time it was aircraft um 114 or 114 i shut it down i filmed it it was like killing the terminator and i jumped uh. out of the jet and i go wow that's a big part of my career i flew those things for 27 years or something i don't know how i'm going to handle this and yeah. it hasn't been a thing f-35s were there i pretty much jumped into the f-35 simulator the year after and I started instructing even before I flew the F-35. I was instructing in the simulator. And I am very surprised that it, not that emotional. I love the jet. Don't get me wrong. If you, if you talk about gloves, the Hornets not, wasn't a glove to me. It was part of my skin. We shared DNA. <laughs> You'd spent 3,600 hours in the classic Hornet. That's a lot of hours flying. Oh, it's a lot of fighter hours. Yeah, like I said, though, it was part of my DNA. So I was surprised that I didn't miss it. I think the excitement of the F-35 and the challenges it brings, like it's not just a stealthy hornet it's got a whole lot of new roles and new capabilities and incredibly different technology that's been really challenging and i think that's really got my buzz going can you reflect back across those 3600 hours and tell me one moment you really cherish as a memory and one moment you don't 
I think in the Hornet, it's flying. It was flying combat operations. I remember one moment, in, and it was probably 2016, not 2003. You know, I was tanking off one of our RAF KC-30s. It was 3 a.m. in the morning. I remember looking around at this airplane and just appreciating it that it came from a 19 late 70s design. It's been upgraded all the way through. It was reliable as any fighter ever built. Uh, and I sat there and I just sat in it for that moment and went, "This is quite impressive." You know, we got the latest weapons on board, and uh, this jet really looked after me and it was probably a bit of a romantic moment to be honest flew home for two hours watched the sun come up from the east there and it was just one of those aha moments i think i've had many scary moments i've been hit by lightning three times in the hornet i remember probably one of the most shocking flights my first night flight in tyndall in catherine took off on um one of our famous pilots, JQ, John Quace Wings, took off on his wing and all around us were thunderstorms. He told me, it'll be all right, Phil. And as soon as we got airborne, a lightning bolt connected his aeroplane to mine. Wow. Uh, are they lightning proofed, are they? they, they, they well, can... you, might, you might think that, but you know, my hand was thrown off the stick <laughs> with a jolt of electricity. I lost my displays, <laughs> my radar. There was a massive hole out the back of my jet. So lightning safe, not lightning proof would be a better analogy. F-35s, F-35s, you're now, you've done your training, you're in the F-35, You even before maybe you're a wing commander, we won't get there. What is it like flying an F-35 and how does it compare to everything else you've flown? It's very easy to fly, as you'd expect with technology. So actually just flying or poling it around, as a pilot would say. It's a beautiful, responsive, very powerful aircraft. But I think it, you know, as far as power goes, my first takeoff in the F-35, and I did a lot of display flying in the F-18 Hornet. So, you know, I really threw that thing around close to the ground. Uh, jumped the F-35, my first takeoff's a full afterburner takeoff. It pushes out 40,000 pounds of thrust. At full fuel weight, I'm taking off and I'm 35 to 40 degrees nose up. And my aircraft's accelerating through 500 kilometers an hour towards 600 kilometers an hour and i'm literally pushed back in the seat for about 20 seconds while it's accelerating i couldn't reach forward and change the radio frequency because i wasn't prepared for it so that was a interesting in introduction to the power of it the technology and the way we fight it so we're a stealth aircraft everyone knows it but stealth isn't a magic coat that protects you everywhere and all the time you still have to fight to its capabilities so the way we do air-to-air -air fighting not dog fighting that's pretty similar but the way we do long-range air-to-air tactics is pretty different it's another leap of tactics the way we can attack surface air missiles so one of our roles is to take out surface air missiles as well which we didn't do in a hornet the way the jet fuses information shares information and for you to dig through that for the piece that you need at the right time is tactically incredibly challenging and at the same time, incredibly rewarding. When you get it right in this thing, you are a uh, force of nature out there and you can take on some pretty big numbers of adversary and do pretty well when you get it mm. right. Just explain that a little bit further, Phil. The information coming through to you in the helmet, there's a multiplicity of bits of information. Have you, you personally got to select which is the appropriate information to respond to? Absolutely. So it's not so much through the helmet, it's actually through our displays. So sitting in front of me is a full wall of glass cockpit with four configurable displays effectively, which are all touch screens. That's where all the information gets fused and I need to make the right selections off that. So I'm actually looking down a lot more than looking out through the helmet, to be honest, until I actually get into visual range or close range combat. And the looking out of the display, you know, I'm deciding what sensor that came from. Did the information come 
from my wingman and what the level of fidelity is and how robust is it before making certain selections like which target I'm going to shoot at, for example. Am I being jammed at the same time? There's a whole lot of variables now. That's honestly a fun part of it is that challenge of making decisions. Coming back in the debrief and rewatching your tapes when you're not flying and going, oh, I could have done a better job there, Phil. <laughs> So everything is recorded while you're in, in flight and you can watch all of that back when you're on the ground. Yeah, we've always done that with Hornet. Early on in Hornet, it was terrible. It never got great in Hornet till the end uh, in the last probably five, seven years. But on this jet, first thing we do is go back into the vault out the back because of the classification. The tapes are played on big 4K resolution screens. There's no hiding anything. It's all out there to be, to be seen by all of you. We put all four, if we're flying as a four ship, you know, we'll have four of those screens on top of each other. So we're all helping each other to get better and to learn through the debrief. When you are, let's assume, in a combat situation, are you flying as an individual or are you always flying with a group of others? Always with a group of others. We can fly with individuals if we end up that way because an aircraft breaks or, heaven forbid, one shot down. But two aircraft is uh, far more powerful than two single aircraft, if you understand what I mean. So the capabilities, the way they share data between each other, it's more than a force multiplier of one. In that group flying toward a potential combat, uh, are you still being instructed by someone on the ground or are you totally 100% independent of any ground communication? Uh, we are autonomous with support is the best way. So obviously some of the ground systems or the airborne systems like our wedge tail can see things at longer range than us. Typically they share that via data with us so we can see what they're seeing in some ways. They might have more fidelity in some ways. So they provide support. They can provide us in some cases the authority to use weapons, so rules of engagement. And many times we are autonomous as well. So each captain is an autonomous weapon employment authority. You know, it's us that has to press the button that makes the missile go. And so we train to that. So it's, it's blended, to be honest, is the best way of looking at it. But yeah, we certainly can operate autonomously as well. Okay. So in that autonomous operation, if you are involved with a hot target, let's just say a hot target on the ground, it is you as an autonomous fighter pilot who makes the decision to release missile? Yeah, that's correct. So ultimately, the uh, weapon employment order comes down to the person in the cockpit. I believe the F-35 is a fifth-generation fighter, yes? Yeah, that's correct. What is a fifth-generation fighter? They kind of just generically put them into batches, I guess, if that makes sense. So a Hornet, a classic Hornet, the original Hornet that I flew was a fourth generation, you know, lower technology, but more importantly, no stealth in its design effectively. Bits and pieces added maybe over time, but really it's not a stealthy aircraft. Through to an airframe in fifth generation that is designed around stealth, then incorporating everything around that capability. We've got our Super Hornets here, which I'm looking at right now, uh, and our Growlers, and they'd be considered in between. So we call them four and a half gen. You keep on using the word stealth as far as the F-35 or the fifth generation plane is concerned. To what extent is that stealth? Is it 100% stealth or is there a degree or can people on the ground still see you? Define stealth. Yeah, so stealth is a reduction in signature and that's all it should be ever considered as. So that might in other airframes or some airframes be uh, yeah, visual signature, might be noise signature or just radar signature. When you think of stealth, it's about reducing the probability that you get detected by the enemy at a tactically significant range. You know, once we're close enough, everyone's going to see you. The stealth doesn't matter. You can rip the coat off. But it's about making an advantage by not being detected as late as possible, if that makes sense. So that's what stealth really means. 
Now, I know you're not a, a designer of, of aircraft, but if you were to take the tail, if you were to develop a, plane, a fighter and take the tail off the machine, would that increase its stealth capability? Yeah, absolutely. So um, any bit of metal, any bit of substance in the air has a signature. You can't make things invisible yet. I'm sure it's coming one day. So a good example of that is the B-2. And I think you probably, if you've seen a photo of the latest stealth fire bomber from the US B-21 radar head on, there's no tails. You don't need to be an engineer to understand that every bit less that you have, they're also nowhere near as manoeuvrable as my jet with tails. So that's a balance and a trade-off. What potentially could uh, a sixth generation fighter look like? Great question. I don't know. I suspected it'd be pretty large with a lot of weapons on board. That would be probably a guess. Outside of that, it's going to take stealth to another level without a doubt. So I suspect it would have less control surfaces, but I think it's going to be more around the technology associated with it. It's understanding of the electronic environment around it. Whenever they develop one and when if they have one, Australia can get possession of some of them as well. All right, why is the F-35 called a beast? Uh, we call it a beast. I think it kind of comes down to a lot of the power of it, if that makes sense. So the, the thrust that it has, it's certainly a beast when you let it go. And tactically, it punches way above its weight. A good example is it might be two F-35s flying around and the number of adversary aircraft that we can take on with just two of us is you know more than double what a Hornet could take on. So that makes it, as far as a force multiplier, a bit of a beast in itself, yeah. Joined in the 1980s, the Air Force. This is now 2023. How... Has the RAF changed from when you joined to now? How is it different, if it is? It has changed a lot. I'll give you two perspectives. So one would be capability, uh, capability potential for combat to go to war, to provide air and space power is disproportionately much larger than it was in the 90s, for example, where, again, I think we're pretty much a training organisation without any conflict on the horizon. We are seamlessly integrated with the US in operations. We are pretty seamless with our other forces uh, in Australia, so the Navy and the Army that's changed a lot as well. From a safety perspective, the numbers scream of maturity in the system and something I'm very proud of that I was part of, I guess, not by cause it or, but I certainly have seen the change and I'm a big proponent of it. You know, the last fighter, 81 wing lost, was uh, a very good friend of mine, Jeppo, and that was back in 1992. That's the last time we actually crashed a fighter and killed a pilot. Now, we've been lucky a few times since then. But prior to that, I was losing a friend pretty much every year or a couple every year in there. And if you think back to Mirages, the number of aircraft losses are significant. So we lost four Hornets in 35 years of operation. And all of them happened, you know, in the first seven. That's come around to a real maturity in aviation and the way to train. We didn't get less dynamic. We got more capable. You know, it's a growth process, really. and There's been cultural change. Wing Commander, when you got that promotion, how did you feel? Who told you? How did it occur? Air Commander Australia actually rang me. He rang me from a beach in Hawaii. I'm sure he won't mind me saying that. And said, hey, Phil, do you want to be the commanding officer at 2ACU? I said, absolutely. You don't often get a phone call from Air Vice Marshals. So when they do, you should answer the phone. I did. And that was a wonderful surprise. So I knew it was possibly on the cards, but I didn't expect it. So I jumped at the opportunity. That was uh, mid last year, really. Let's talk about family. How important has family been to you? So how important was Trina and you together and the RAAF? It is 
paramount <laughs> at the moment. Uh, the support that we provide each other, it's incredible. You know, I think a bit of her background being military has been incredibly supportive of my career uh, as I try to do of hers. And But her intimate understanding of the things we want, I want to talk about or don't want to talk about, things we step around and just that understanding of the ups and downs associated with the job, mostly ups. She's my second wife. My first wife, Amelia, was incredibly supportive all the way through in our relationship as well, which were really in the developmental years and when I had my children with Millie. So she was uh, an incredible support basis. And I don't know how people would do it without that. And as far as your children are concerned, there's Amy, yep. May and Billy. Amy's a nurse, yep. May's a pilot of a C-130 and Billy's at uni. Did you have any influence over May joining the Air Force? I imagine uh, she's a pretty similar personality to me and she's always seen the joy and the excitement I have about the job. So she was pretty keen, pretty interested. Got a couple of flights when she was 18 or 19. Before she started pilot's course, somehow she got posted to my unit waiting for her training, which was nice. And I got to take her flying in a F-18 Hornet on, the, on her 21st birthday. Does that mean you were in charge of her? I didn't have it directly in my chain of command, no. I no, okay. the case. So I, but that would be okay too. There's plenty <laughs> of family connections uh, in the Air Force and hopefully my son, he's uh, applying for the Air Force now. That's Billy at uni. Yeah, Billy at uni and mother daughter Amy has a couple of sons and she followed her mother's footsteps in nursing. I know you enjoy fitness yeah. and you enjoy cooking, but you also enjoy long distance running, but you do it very slowly. How can an F-35 pilot <laughs> do long distance running slowly? Yeah, so um, a friend of mine, Mac, got me into, I've always liked running, but he got me into ultra marathons. <laughs> so uh, I've done four of those and 100 kilometres, 4,000 metres of climbing. My best time was 17 and a half hours means it's, it is very slow. <laughs> Wing Commander Phil Eldridge, you have, I mean, I've really, really enjoyed talking to you and, and knowing that you're in charge of people just like you. I think the Royal Australian Air Force, I've used the term before, not only does punch well above its weight, but if you want to rank terms of ability and preparedness and for such a small population, I think we're almost number one. Top gun as far as the RAAF is concerned. It's been an honour talking to you, and I know we're in good hands with people like you flying the F-35s and defending Australia. So thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute privilege, and I hope the next F-35 flight for you is uh, like your first one. You can't reach the controls. Thanks, Gareth. Thanks for an awesome interview. It's been nice reflecting. Globally, the RAAF has between 500 and 700 people on operations every day contributing to coalition operations, peacekeeping and humanitarian and disaster relief. The RAAF takes pride in its service. It has a history of endeavour and sacrifice, which has won it a place in the hearts of all Australians and a position of respect among the armed services of all Australia's allies. The RAAF will never tarnish its record. It carries on in the proud tradition of Per Adua Ad Astra. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. Produced by Air Force Association New South Wales, which is a registered charity that focuses on the well-being of Air Force veterans and their families. If you would like to donate funds to help us with this important work, you can search Air Force Association New South Wales in Google and go to our website.